vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. Has the strength of 20 or more people. They can also control the meaner things of life. The bat, the rodent, the wolf. They can appear as mist, as vapor, as fog. Welcome to Nerdologians, where we learn that while there may be atheists in foxholes, there are almost certainly no Baptists in a vampire outbreak. <laughs> we are your curators, Bryson and Zechariah. Tonight we'll be discussing Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Get yourself a good sharp steak and drive it right through his heart. All right. Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Uh, it had been a long time since I've read this book. I probably read it, I don't know, 10 years ago. Freaking loved it then. Freaking loved it this time. I think this is that like that classic old school Stephen King that, you know, it's it's creepy. It's kind of fantastical. It has an adventure to it. And I was, I just, I listened to this on the audiobook and it was on Audible and the narrator is just killing it the whole time. So this is like a super, super good book. If you want to listen to it on Audible, you know, you're, you're trying to get in your creepy mode. We're recording this actually after Halloween, but uh, we need to get get sponsored by Audible. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. It is great. I freaking love it. I was never a big audiobook person until we started doing this podcast and uh, I've been forced in order to cover the material and the time that we are allowed like at my job I can listen to them while I'm working it's awesome and the narrators are always freaking awesome so audible if you're listening pitch us something <laughs> yeah but uh yeah anyway. I I I had to actually read this in print because we're just coming on the deadline and so since I can speed read I'm just going with the uh kind of Kindle version mm-hmm. so my experience is slightly different so another thing is uh this is kind of the first like real horror book i read like horror just is not my genre i like sci-fi fantasy like either adventure or whatever whatnot uh so this is a shift for me i have read stephen king before but i read dark tower stuff so i'm like shifting from that into his uh horror here and there were like some vibes i picked up here like you know that reminds me of dark tower like oh for sure man like in the beginning the very beginning you have the man and the boy and i'm like okay this is big uh roland and like what the kid's name in the dark tower series that was giving me those vibes yeah man and a boy out alone against the world stuff right yeah and i I remember when you brought this up to me and i was i was seeing the same stuff because i think i read salem's lot like way before i ever read the dark tower and so when I, you know, just the order of the book, Salem's Lot, then Dark Terror. But this time when I read it, I was totally like, holy shit, you're right. Like this definitely has strong Dark Tower vibes. And I noticed a few like Stephen King universe tropes or whatever. There's a scene where, anyways, the the boy, the main character kid, it is not Danny Glick. It is, hold on. Mark Petrie. Mark Petrie. But anyways, yeah, there's a scene where Mark Petrie, this is one of his encounters. Like, this is a famous scene if you've ever seen the movie and you're into old scary movies. But where the boy is, the the vampire has come up to his window. He's like, let me in, let me in. And part of uh, Mark Petrie's character is he's like, he's like into horror movies and, you know, all that kind of thing. So he has some sort of intuition. And Stephen King also notes that this, this is like a part of 
about being a child as opposed to an adult that like to mark he hadn't been so conditioned by the world to be so horrified by the idea of vampires plus his interest in like horror fiction and stuff but there's a scene where and if anybody's seen it i don't know what you'd call it the the rhyme that the main character says in it where he he's trying to not stutter where he talks about uh no matter how many times he sees the ghost he beats his hand against the post or whatever and what's interesting about that is that that's like an in-universe Stephen King almost holy phrase because you know the vampires of course are held off by crucifixes but they're also held off by this poem he recites that is the same poem that the character it recites to sort of fend off Pennywise the clown. Salem's Lot is definitely one of these books that, you know, inhabits the Stephen King Dark Tower universe. Father Callahan, for example. Now, Zechariah, you're in the in Dark Tower right now. I don't think you've made it this far yet, but not you want to go enough. into this Father Callahan thing a little bit? Yeah, I haven't I've not made it that far. Mm. Uh you mean in the uh like I know he appears in Dark Tower, but I haven't really uh got there yet in the book series. Okay, uh, from what I remember, Father Callahan in the Dark Tower. Now, everyone give me the benefit of the doubt here that it's been a while since I've read these. But Father Callahan was like a wandering ex-priest that inhabited this village in the Dark Tower series that is being persecuted by these people called the Wolves or something. And in Salem's Lot, this is sort of his like origin story where Father Callahan is a priest that is sort of... Uh, questioning his faith and whatnot. And a lot of that has to do with his sort of problem with the modern world. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but like sort of the Vatican, the spirit of Vatican too, right? Because Father Callahan is like sort of disenchanted by this modernist approach to his religion and kind of it causes him to doubt like there's scenes in the book where a pivotal you know because it's stephen king so a lot of these chapters like they're very very character driven so one of the chapters of father callahan he's kind of having this conversation with somebody or himself can't remember but about how he has this desire to go back into sort of older forms of catholicism because they act they believed in the devil and whatnot there's a passage where uh father callahan is talking talking about how the devil and you know these supernatural forces of evil have sort of been replaced by like freudian analysis of the psyche so instead of there being an evil spirit tormenting someone it's some like dark aspect of their psyche hmm. so it kind of gives you a little bit of, of background and uh, sort of the vibe of salem's lot but uh Zechariah noticed this. This is very early on in the book. Do you want to talk about the uh, the dog and the cemetery? All right. So, yeah, early on, we get this scene where uh, they find this dead dog, like, hung on the gate, of the gate or the wall of the cemetery. And uh, I was like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> because cemeteries are considered to be holy ground uh within sort of the catholicism tradition and so there's whole things about if you're like a certain type of person you aren't buried in the cemetery in holy ground you have to be buried outside and so when i was starting this book i was coming in looking for a whole for uh sort of sacred space holy ground type stuff and so when i saw it i'm like all right then and so dogs are considered unclean animals so i was thinking all right is this because the 
dog is an unclean animal and they're trying to deconsecrate the place. I don't think that was quite right, but I think it was close enough when we moved later in that mm. it had something to it. Yeah, it was it was it didn't really dawn on me when I was first reading that chapter. Like I I think this dog thing, it's revealed when I first read this scene, it didn't like okay, I'm reading it. It strikes me that this is important, but it's not it's not expanded upon for quite a while. But I think it kind of works to the benefit of the book, right? Cuz like a, a lot of this book is spent building the atmosphere of what's going on. It never, it doesn't come out for a long time that this is going to be like a vampire book. It's sort of, you almost kind of have it like it's a satanic panic type of thing, right? Because you have this sacrifice of this dog, and then you have like the disappearance of various characters within the story. And, you know, if you're, if you have the watchful eye of Zechariah with his head in the sacred space stuff, like I think if he didn't know prior, to this being some sort of like supernatural, uh, you know, supernatural enemy in the story. Now, this is kind of interesting with the vampire myth thing. And it kind of goes to show you how, you know, like this sacred space concept kind of disappears from the dialogue, from maybe mainstream dialogue with, you know, like maybe post-Protestantism or, or something. But like the, it's still within the vampire tradition, right? Like in the footnotes or in the beginning notes, the prologue, in my version anyway, Stephen King talks about how he bases a lot of this off the book Dracula. And one of the kind of cool sacred space motifs in Dracula is that Dracula, when he goes to London, has to bring the land of his people or whatever from Transylvania. He has to rest within this dirt. And so, you know, that's that's like right out of the Bible. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, the, I don't remember what, what the story is or who the guy's name is, but you know this, you know what I'm talking about. The story about the guy Naaman. bringing Yahweh's dirt from another place. Yeah, it's Naaman. Yeah. So Naaman goes, he like gets cured of his diseases by, I think it's Elijah. It's it's really hard to remember between like Elijah and Elisha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so he gets cured of his uh, leprosy or whatnot. And then he's like, yeah, uh, hey, Elijah, buddy, I kind of have to go back. But, you know, uh, I realized that this uh, Yahweh dude, he's pretty chill. Uh, I, like, uh, I like his vibe. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to be having to go into the uh, temple of my god with my king because I'm like a big deal. He's like, what What should I do? And so uh, Elijah's like, here, uh, you can. Or no, he says, can I, so can I take some dirt from Israel with me uh, as I go? Because the idea is, is that the god is in control of that ground, right? And so he's like, all right, I want to. I want to take some of your God's ground along with me, and then uh, I'll be good to good to go. Which is pretty interesting, like how sort of lost concepts. Now, you know, the idea of sacred space, I don't think is ever like totally lost or anything. But you know, like you and I were raised in Protestant backgrounds, and this sort of concept of sacred space, at least in my in my experience, was never. It was it was almost the opposite. Like there was always an attempt to sort of separate the divine from a local. Being Protestants, you know, you, you learn the stuff about how 
it's not the place it's the people and you know and i don't necessarily disagree with that but you can but it's interesting that these concepts still live on within the vampire myth right and this is probably some outdated scholarship but when we started this it, it like instantly popped into my mind that and i can't remember which one it is it's like biblical demonology by Junger or one of these old sort of uh protestant accumulation of catholic demonology and then like making it a biblical demonology but there is a a verse in the book of proverbs it's a proverbs 30 14 through 15 and i'll read it it says uh those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to de devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind verse 15 the leech has two daughters give give they cry now in this book this author makes this argument that this word for leech it's a aluka and essentially what they what they some scholars apparently believed about this word is that the like the literal translation is horse leech but there is some sort of evidence i'm assuming i'm, I'm hoping <laughs> That this Aluka in ancient in the ancient world is some form of a vampire, and now I guess they're linking the teeth are as swords and this horse leech word. And I'm not sure how this is really in the ancient Near East or not, but I do believe that this actually comes up within like Jewish myth, like medieval Jewish myth. Uh, okay, Solomon refers to a female demon named Aluka in a riddle he tells in Proverbs. The riddle, the riddle involves Aluka's ability to curse a womb bearing seed. Historically, Aluka has been closely associated with Lilith, or thought to be her direct descendant. The name Aluka may additionally merely be another title for Lilith or whatever. And the reason I thought that that was interesting is how, you know, throughout human existence, really, there has always been this, like, creature in the background of mythology or whatever that is like a blood drinker. He is a night creature. It is a night creature. And it's just fascinating how like this, this it's almost like this primordial terror in the human psyche continually pops up throughout history. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think there I think there's definitely something to that. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of interesting. And I was reading some articles. I don't know if anybody ever follows haarts.com. And I don't know how anybody feels about their political persuasion. I don't really pay attention for it for that. But it's a it's a new big newspaper out of uh, Israel. But they have a really cool archaeology section. And I found some uh, articles. I'm not really going to quote from them or anything. But the point of the articles is uh, like, let's see, it's prehistoric skeletons with a strange history found in Jordan and then stalking us for 9000 years, 11 origins of the undead. And one of the themes that are in both of these articles is how they've discovered tombs and whatnot that it, it'll it be like there's one tomb and it'll have a bunch of feet in it. Or there's one tomb, it'll have a bunch of hands in it. And I guess some of these archaeologists uh, theorize that one of the possible more spooky explanations for this is that this was an ancient precautionary measure to prevent these these people from like being buried and then coming back as these blood drinkers which i mean you see kind of similar stuff in like medieval times and the vampire explanation i think is more the spooky explanation but you'll see like these old burial sites and they'll have these like cages on top of them 
I the the more probably rational explanation is this, this was to prevent like grave robbers and stuff. But you know, in the more kind of esoteric occult folklorish uh, you know explanations, some people think that this is some sort of evidence of a belief in vampirism and uh, that this idea seems to be prevalent in the ancient world that you know there's a big worry in the air that once they bury people after they're dead that they need to keep them down there because <laughs> I, I don't know i guess they've had problems with them coming back in the past or something but uh you know pretty interesting stuff yeah and there there's definitely d- different uh ideas of how you keep down an undead in various cultures mm-hmm. uh actually most of them uh the stake through the heart thing is actually a more rare one. The most common is cut off the head, right? Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes there's additions to cut off the head, like cut off the head and put the head like between the legs, or uh, cut off the head and stuff its mouth with uh, X, or uh, yeah. cut off the head and bury it. Separate. I don't know. Various, <laughs> various things. Yeah. <laughs> but that's always is interesting about studying that stuff in the ancient world is that you would think that these remedies like evolved over time in some capacity and just this idea that there's a real (laughs) there's a real need for making sure that these people stay on the ground and that they don't come back and attack us it's kind of interesting like i mean what what was the process of elimination for figuring out that like well actually not only do we need to cut off the head we need to stuff the mouth with garlic yeah so, you know kind of interesting stuff but what did you think about did you get to read the version where it has the uh, stephen king prologue in it yes i did now stephen king in this his inspiration for writing salem's lot was like this convergence between his love of Lord of the Rings and him seeing Drac or reading Dracula, I believe he read the book. I think this is what said. But did you pick up that theme at all in this of this sort of like epic quest to destroy like this unfathomable power? Like, did you make that connection while you're reading this to sort of how Stephen King would have incorporated Lord of the Rings into this? Uh, I mean, in some sense, like, yeah, uh, Father Callahan is kind of, uh, a Gandalf figure in some sense, right? Yeah. At some level. And then you have the fall of uh, Gandalf, uh, like you do in Moria. Yeah, right? for sure. A little bit, a little bit more uh, visceral and uh, here, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the only thing I can think of offhand. Okay. I do see uh, the whole gathering characters things, but uh, yeah, I don't know how much, how much of that... Uh, would really make me think of Lord of the Rings without having uh, him tell me that first. Right. Yeah. It seems like like it's a theme buried within a theme buried within a theme or something. Because I I can kind of see it. I I think I get it more out of the actual book Dracula because you know I feel like in Stephen King you get way more character development than you would in Lord of the Rings. But in Dracula they the characters all all sort of have that virtue thing going on you know like lord of the rings the characters are all like you know personifications of great virtue and stuff like that and then dracula there aren't any like secret bad guys going on right like uh you have jonathan harker mina harker van helsing and these other people and they're definitely 
portrayed as these great, you know, virtuous characters. And Dracula is like un, unrepentantly evil, un, unredeemably evil. One thing, and this is like, this is totally in a lot of Stephen King stuff. A lot of his horror stories like take place in small towns. And I think that really adds to the sort of overall mystique of the vampire story. I think it, he made a good decision in doing this because a lot of times, you know, if you look at people that are accused of being vampires back in the day, they're always like this outsider, you know, for, for instance, like look at the vampire and how he's portrayed in, uh, like different different works of literature and stuff. It's kind of bizarre because when I was reading this, what I kept thinking of is uh, like the the horrors of the vampire, blood drinking. They're usually like Eastern European. They are described as having high foreheads, large noses, pointy ears, and then like developed mouth structure or something. Now, what this reminded me of is it reminds me of anti-Semitic stereotypes. <laughs> and yeah like and if you think about what is this act of becoming a vampire the vampire drinks the blood and then in order to really turn the person into a vampire they must drink the blood of the vampire the victim must drink the blood of the vampire and this has this like weird eucharistic metaphysics or something going on right like the whole idea is that if you want to become one with the commune of the king vampire, the the way to experience this like evil reflection of eternal life is to drink the blood of the vampire, which I mean, you know more about this than I do, but it's really honing in on this like the blood is the life thing. Now that has biblical precedence, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely has biblical precedence. So drinking blood was forbidden in the Old Testament. I think partially because like other people were like had cultic practices where blood drinking was involved and they were like, well, well let's not let's not be like those guys. Let's be different. But it's also <laughs> good idea. Also, uh, it was forbidden because blood was seen as like kind of this pure life in some sense. Uh, so, like one thing that the priest would do on the Day of Atonement is he would bring blood into the holy place in the Holy of Holies and then sprinkle the blood around because the pure life, which is kind of like pure being, pure existence, is going to cleanse away the impurities, which are like death and decay and corruption and incompleteness. And so by sprinkling that on in the inside of them going out and sprinkling on the people, they're purified by the blood. So blood is like purity and life. And so uh was considered dangerous because it's a loss of life. Right. Things like that. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see how this weird anti-Semitic thing, like if you were going to demonize a people that had this super elevated view of blood, you know, and then like, you know, the Jews, one of the things that they're, you know, accused of is how they're obsessed with their bloodlines and stuff. And then like how, you know, they, they want to tr be able to trace back their genealogies to the tribes of Israel and stuff. So you, you can see how if you were going to demonize something like that, you, you would probably see this large exaggeration of like blood ritual, right? Because which is totally tied into the whole blood libel thing against the Jews during the medieval period. They would always accuse the Jews of, you know, stealing their kids in the night and then drinking their blood and all that kind of stuff. And interesting because Christians were accused of 
cannibalism by their pagan neighbors early on because of the communion. And we yep. want to talk about uh, communion, any? <laughs> yeah. Or the Eucharist. Yeah. So with with all of that, right? There's we literally have this idea of drinking. Well, in more apostolic faiths, you're drinking the body and the uh, you're eating the body and drinking the blood. And in certain Protestant sects, it's like you're there's symbols of blood or whatnot. You've got that whole thing going on, and you can definitely think of this and think, hey, is this whole vampirism thing also kind of a decay or pushback against Holy Eucharist thing on a kind of a spiritual level somewhat, right? Yeah, I mean, it would almost have to be, I would think, which is interesting because the vampire is always like portrayed as, you know, like the opposite of that where you know in the literature it's always like the catholic priest or the crucifix and all this that can you know push back against the vampire but like if you peel back one layer it, you can definitely see how a vampire might be this this subtle attack on eucharistic theology well you notice that they brought the in the book they brought the priest brought the host with them and the host is like this catholic word for like the little wafer that gets blessed and it comes to the body right yeah i think probably what he did with it is would probably be considered sacrilegious but <laughs> uh yeah yeah, yeah. Stuck it in the door jam to like keep the vampire from coming back into his house. Uh, and you're like not even supposed to let like the crumbs fall to the ground or anything. So I'm right. like, oh. And there is a moment where I don't either the uh, vampire was kind of bullshitting or he, uh, Stephen King, doesn't quite know Catholic theology because the vampire, when he's like confronting the priest, says something like, where is it? He says something about how, uh, aren't you aware of your own theology? Don't you know that the, the host is only holy as long as you believe it is? <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember reading that too. Like, eh. like no, that's not, <laughs> it's not Catholic. Literally the opposite of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, literally, uh, it's... It's holy despite the fact that if you believe it or not, like you can have a priest who is like in deep sin and the Eucharist is still becomes holy. Right. It's kind of the uh, actual, actual thing. Barlow the Vampire was very much a fan of, uh, of like Martin Luther and <laughs> Calvin or something. <laughs> oh, crying. Okay, so there's just one one line early on that i was just hilarious where uh basically the guy's calling uh ben mears and he's like do you have like a crucifix or like a saint anthony's medal he's like no no i'm uh i'm baptist <laughs> and we kind of see over the course of the book that uh his his uh baptistry quickly uh goes out of the window <laughs> yeah like someone at one point uh, the he's like in the hospital and he's going to his friend and it says here's the quote he hesitated a moment longer then went to the closet and opened it Matt's clothes hung there and hooked over the closest doors inside knob was the crucifix he had been wearing when Susan visited it him it hung from a filigree chain that gleamed softly in the room's subdued light Ben took it back to the bed and hung it around Matt's neck here what are you doing a nurse had come in with a pitcher of water and a bedpan with a towel spread decorously over the opening. I'm putting his cross around his neck, Ben said. Is he a Catholic? He is now, Ben said soberly. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's what's kind of interesting about like i don't know a lot about stephen king's personal beliefs but i do know that in his more horror side that he seems to have there seems to be some motivation or some theme going on about how the modern world is a certain way and one thing that it needs is like this return to some sort of belief in supernatural evil which is strange to me because i think in most interviews stephen king believes in evil but i think it's almost the opposite of his fiction right because he is even though he seems to be lamenting the sort of modernist dismissal of supernatural evil in his interviews he seems to be more of like a more on the modernist side but i don't know why that would be or anything but this this theme is really pretty prevalent and i think that's interesting mm. and it, it is you know it, it kind of fits some of the stuff that we've talked about in other episodes about how you know the the modern the modern world its ignorance of the reality of supernatural evil is one of these underlying currents as to why it's such a shit show in the first place like if you look at kind of the historical perspective of all this is how back in the day the vampire is considered like like a monster right there's very little humanness within the monster and you know like in stephen king barlow is always is is described many times as having as he's like pretending to be human as opposed to you know the more modern perspective of vampires where you know you have like twilight you have like true blood the hbo series uh and rice right where the vampire is still pretty much a human being he's like a human plus or a human with a disease or right i have never read I've read the first Anne Rice novel. I think it's The Vampire Lestat, maybe. It's one of the early ones. And I, But I've seen the movie Interview with the Vampire plenty of times. It's a great movie. But in those, you kind of see this idea of, you know, the vampire... Hey, you want to hear some crazy uh, neurological shit? Okay. Okay, so I was, like, on Facebook and, like, some Christian groups or whatever. And there was this woman who was, like, talking about... Uh, like Lucifer, Satan, etc. And I'm like, wait, where are you getting any of this from? Uh, and she's like, oh, I'm getting it from Anne Rice. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> that has nothing. <laughs> none of what you said has anything to do with the Bible. And she's like, well, I think Anne Rice is uh, has a better grasp on it. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is what's interesting. This is kind of where I was heading with that, is that now the vampire is no longer this just monster from the abyss or whatever. It's like this human thing. And like the Anne Rice trope of the vampire, it, it almost seems like the the thing that Father Callahan is, is, you know, hates about the world, how we've abandoned the supernatural evil in exchange for like Freud and stuff, how that has almost given birth to like this vampire subculture right this this well, like it's not, for, just, it's not just vampires we we tend to humanize almost anything that was like classically a monster take right. lord of the rings and orcs right now we uh depending on depending on the on the lore right uh there's uh-huh. some versions but like one of them is they're kind of twisted elves but in the book they're like 100 percent monstrous there's not really a uh oh they can be reformed sort of idea but in popular culture they've kind of slowly 
made the way up into kind of this noble savage archetype. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seemed like I was reading some stuff on this and I read some like the psychology of vampires. Now what they're calling vampires is like the modern version, right? The humanization of the vampire. And so what's funny about this is that these like psychologists will, will try to like do this sort of psychoanalysis on the vampire trope. And it, it, it fits really well with like father Callahan's dilemma, because what the kind of stuff I was reading is that the vampire is like this manifestation of the id or something like, okay, what's it this is kind of funny i don't know i mean psychoanalysis is weird but i'll basically what i was reading is that this vampire this desire to take on this vampiric lifestyle or this you know theme of the human vampire is some sort of projection of one of the first experiences of a newborn and what they were saying is how one of the things that is swatted away or whatever or disciplined out of children is during breastfeeding when the baby begins to sort of wean themselves off breastfeeding they'll start biting their mother while they're breastfeeding and then the mother will like smack them and say yeah quit it so this is like the one of the first desires being you know ironed out in order for this this baby to adjust to the family life or civilization or something. And I was reading this and I'm like, oh, this is why Father Callahan hates this shit. Because it's like, it's like now the vampire has been humanized to a degree where this vampiric manifestation is somehow correlated with like the repressed desires or something. So when, when someone you know, in the modern time, want to be a part of like a vampire subculture. Part of the underlying subconscious desire is this like manifestation of this alter ego that is built from this uh, repression of biting or something, which I was, I mean, I was reading that and I can kind of see it because I'm like, you know, I like psychoanalysis and stuff, but it kept occurring to me like reading this like they it's it's like something where this ultimate evil has now been sort of it's been softened or dampened in some kind of way that the reason that we have this is because of you know repression and treating our kids badly and shit <laughs> it's like dude i'm 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 really vibing with father callahan right now but um oh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. there's definitely this very catholic overtone to this whole thing right like you have the whole thing like another really funny quote about the the uh supposed baptist at one point is uh this is hilarious it says jimmy suddenly said where's your cross been started cross jesus i don't have one you were never a boy scout jimmy said and opened his bag i however always come prepared he brought out two tongue depressors <laughs> stripped off the protective cellophane and bound them at right angles with a twist of red cross tape. Bless it, she said to Ben. What? I can't. I don't know how. Then make it up, Jimmy said. His pleasant face suddenly appeared strained. You're the writer. You'll have to be the metaphysician. For Christ's sake, hurry. I think something is going to happen. Can't you feel it? And Ben could. Something seemed to be gathering in the slow purple twilight, unseen as yet, but heavy and electric. His mouth had gone dry and he had to wet his lips before he could speak. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Then he added as an afterthought. In the name of the Virgin Mary, too. Bless this cross. <laughs> yeah. 
And when I was reading that, this now I don't know again if this is like Stephen King just being Stephen King, but what I was remembering is: Have you ever heard of this guy named Montague Summers? Sounds vaguely familiar. Okay, Montague Summers is quite the character. Now he got famous, like his first big, you know, event that he was a part of that brought him notoriety was that he was the uh, he was the guy that produced the very first English translation of the Malleus Maleficarum, the witch hammer, the, the book that the, the people used to persecute witches and whatnot. And it's interesting because one of the things about Montague Summers is no one can find any evidence that he's ever actually been ordained. So I guess I forgot to mention this. Montague Summers went around proclaiming that he was like this Catholic bishop or priest. So he's got that whole vibe going on and he's going around and he writes, he does that. And then he, what he, he writes, like, what is it? The history of witchcraft and demonology. He writes something else like that. But then he comes out with this book called vampire, his kith and kin. And this is basically a collection that Montague Summers has compiled of all these old vampire myths and all this kind of stuff. And this guy, like a lot of vampire mythology is all descended from this dude. And one of the things that, I mean, he's even like associated with, gosh, who is it? I don't think it's Crowley, but it's someone else. So this guy who claims to be this Catholic bishop while also like making his rounds in the occult circles of the time, um, he's, there's this vibe when you're reading him that he's sort of like playing this part of almost like a Van Helsing figure. And I, I I thought of that while I was reading Stephen King, where he's like, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's just ma- it's just a matter of if you believe it. And so it's almost like this Montague Summers figure is like an old time version of uh, what's his name, where in order to adapt to his perceived problem of vampires, he actually just pretends that he's this Catholic priest and like travels the countryside you know, giving the townspeople information on how to, how to take out vampires. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like you were talking about earlier, how the vampire might be some sort of press back against like this Eucharistic metaphysics or whatever, where it seems like it's not the object in itself, it's the faith again. So Montague Summers takes on this role as Catholic priest and takes on this role, even though it's all pretend, but it has like, you know, basically creates the modern vampire. I mean, probably a stretch, but it's kind of a weird thematic affinity there. Uh, I have some quotes from his book, The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, so we can delve into that a little bit. Uh, This is from... Oh, I thought these had page numbers. Anyways, the vampire is believed to be one who has devoted himself during his life to the practice of black magic. And it is hardly to be supposed that such persons would rest undisturbed. While it is easy to believe that their malevolence had set in action forces which might prove powerful for terror and destruction, even when they were in their graves. So like even here in Montague Summers, right? Let me preface this where uh, the going back to the dog in the cemetery thing, it's revealed later in the book that Straker, who is sort of Barlow's, you know, almost human familiar, uh, Barlow actor, Straker, is it Straker that sacrifices the dog or is it someone else? Do they ever say who it is? I think it's Straker, but... Okay, it's Straker, but 
this idea of the vampire being connected to like black magic practices. Like for instance, I think some of Montague Summer's idea is that the head vampire is always created through some sort of black magic ritual as opposed to his little, you know, peons of his hordes of lesser vampires where they become vampires through some process of like getting bit and then drinking the blood of the head vampire. But here you can see this Montague Summers influence where the head vampire is produced through some sort of profane ritual or something. Uh, here's one. A vampire is generally described as being exceedingly gaunt and lean with a hideous countenance and eyes wherein are glinting the red fire of perdition. When, however, he has satiated his lust for warm human blood, his body becomes horribly puffed and bloated, as though they, he were some great leech, gorged and replete to bursting. So here again, you have this leech connection that we described earlier. Now, I can't remember, but this is definitely in Dracula, where one of the ways... To get the vampire is you know you got to get to the coffin and stake it and whatever but there's always this sort of theme where you want to get it right after it's fed because it's like bloated <laughs> i guess can't get away from you or something but um you know just more vampire myth in stephen king did 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 barlow was he puffed up i do not remember i don't either okay here's another one when the stake has pierced the vampire, he will utter the most terrible shrieks and blood will jet forth in every direction from his convulsed and writhing limbs as he impotently thrashes the air with his quivering hands, which this is totally what Barlow did. There's a tradition that when he has been dead for many years and his mysterious life and death is thus ended, the corpse has been known immediately to crumble into dust. So you get that with Barlow, but I think Barlow's teeth remained, which I don't does that ever have another Stephen King connection? I feel like this is something that's important, but it's never really expanded upon. Yeah, I feel it should be, but I have no idea. Well, I kind of wonder, because isn't the whole theme of killing Barlow is that if you kill the head vampire, the rest of them are supposed to sort of die off? I can't yeah. remember if this is actually in Stephen King or not in this actual book. I think one of my favorite parts of the book is that after they have taken out Barlow, there's a scene where they come back and they see that Barlow's teeth are still sitting in the coffin. And what happens in the book is that once they kill Barlow, like the last chapter is filled with these newspaper articles about how people are slowly disappearing. People are being... Uh, turned into vampires and whatnot. It's done in this newspaper article format, which is pretty sick. But uh, I kind of almost wonder if that's the internal logic of the story, is that the reason the vampires stuck around is because they never got rid of Barlow's teeth. So in some capacity, Barlow still existed. Oh. So I think I kind of want to get back to the whole uh, sacred space, holy ground stuff. Like, So we talked a little bit about the, about the graveyard and how graveyards are considered to be holy ground. So... There's this whole idea about holiness, especially in the Old Testament. And we were talking about, again, Old Testament laws about uh, blood, etc. right? Uh -huh. So blood is like this uh, ultimate life in some sense. And the tabernacle or the temple are like this holy place that is kind of similar. But if you bring something that is unclean, and the ultimate uncleanness in the Mosaic law is corpse impurity, right? So death. So... Like after Nadab and Abihu got uh, blown up, basically, the tabernacle sanctums were impure. And so they had to have this whole thing, the uh, atonement to purify the space. And bringing anything unclean into that area is like a short trip to like getting really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. getting blown up. 
yeah uh spontaneous combustion what have you <laughs> yeah so what are vampires but a uh the whole idea of undeath right basically a, a walking corpse of some sort so they would absolutely be unclean in this idea and so it would make absolute sense that they would not be able to step inside a place that's holy or get near uh, objects which are considered holy, right? Right. Whether that be the crucifix, whether that be the Eucharist, whether that be like a church that has been consecrated or whatever. And so there's definitely that whole idea going on. But I think there's like this really interesting scene with Father Callahan. Uh, so as we all know, this is a spoiler-filled podcast. <laughs> but... Uh, Father Callahan, at like the last minute, uh, kind of loses faith, uh, according to Stephen uh, King here. And so like his cross stops working. Now, that's a whole conversation we can have about uh, symbols and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked in uh, the Gene Wolfe book, uh, Shadow of the Torture, about symbols. Are symbols real and do they have power in and of themselves? Or do we have to believe in them for them to be powerful? Mm-hmm. Stephen King seems to think we have to believe in them. But uh, yeah. Anyway, he fails and the vampire forces him to drink uh, blood or his blood. And so he like goes back to the church and then he uh, can't get in and is like repelled by it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like Father Callahan has now become unclean and now unable to enter into sacred space, which very much has kind of Edenic uh, overtones, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Eden is the holy place. It is the place of utmost holiness. It's where God is, where he walks around. It's kind of the same as the Holy of Holies in some place. In fact, uh, a lot of scholars think that the temple is based on the idea of Eden. So Eden is in the West, uh, kind of like where the sun rises, right? And so the Holy of Holies is always centered in the west of the temple or the tabernacle. And so you have to travel west in and east out. And when the when uh, Adam is banished from uh, Eden, he settles east of Eden. Uh, and then when Cain is banished, he goes further east, uh, I think, into the land of Nod. Mm-hmm. And so it's this whole east is the direction of banishment from sacred space or from Eden. And there is another note here that I made. Or, well, here first I'll read the one about uh, him in the church. St. Andrews loomed above him. He hesitated, then walked up the path. He would pray, pray all night if necessary. Not to the new God, the God of the ghettos and social conscience and free lunches, but the old God who had proclaimed to Moses not to suffer a witch to live, who had given it unto his own son to raise from the dead. A second chance, God, all my life for penance, only a second chance. He stumbled up the wide steps, his gown muddy and bedraggled, his mouth smeared with Barlow's blood. At the top, he paused a moment, and then he reached for the handle of the middle door. As he touched it, there was a blue flash of light, and he was thrown backward. Pain lanced his back, then his head, then his chest and stomach and shins as he fell head over heels down the granite steps of the wall. He lay trembling in the rain, his hand afire. He lifted it up before his eyes. He, it was burned. Unclean, he muttered. Unclean, unclean. Oh God, so unclean. So there's that language of clean and uncleanness, right? Yeah. Uh, and the unclean... Uh, should not enter into sacred space. Which, but yeah, then, that's all that's all over Dracula too, this concept of uncleanliness. So yeah. And so he's about to also later he's about to leave and he says, You'll have to wait outside, Father Callahan. 
I've got to close in about five minutes. She scraped the bills and changed into the cash drawer blindly, making no attempt to count it. That's fine, he said. He stuffed the ticket into his breast pocket. Without looking at her, he said, And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, that whoever, whosoever found him should not kill him. And Cain went out from the face of the Lord, and dwelt as a fugitive on the earth at the east side of Eden. That scripture, Miss Coogan, the hardest scripture in the Bible. Is that so, she said. I'm afraid you'll have to go outside, Father Callahan. But yeah, so... He's definitely playing with this idea a little bit, I think. Right. Like, does he totally understand it? I'm not sure, but he definitely gets the edges of it. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I, I think he he refers to himself as like having the mark of Cain. So like, this is kind of where I think you might get into a little bit of this mythology with like Lilith and like this kind of this whole concept where like the vampire goes back all the way to this Edenic thing even like genetically or something and uh, I think it really this whole thing really attests to what we were what I was talking about earlier about how this vampire trope this the whole myth of the blood drinker and the uncleanliness and how much this is like embedded into the human psyche. I have this story here about, uh, this is a classic paranormal tale, but uh, have you ever heard of any of the Highgate vampire? It sounds familiar. Okay, this is a good one. Uh, in the 1970s uh, in London, there's this uh, famous high society cemetery, Highgate Cemetery. And essentially what had happened is that I believe the area was kind of going through like, you know, a downturn and, you know, you know, poverty was rampant. I think the cemetery was falling apart. And what basically started happening is you started having these people claiming that they had seen something in Highgate Cemetery, like a shadowy figure with red eyes. And what was accompanied with this is that dead animals started appearing in the cemetery for some reason. And essentially, hmm. like what happens is there's a guy named David Ferrant, and he's the president of something. And now this is kind of funny how close these names are. So like, note this. Uh, he's the president of the Psychic and Occult Society. And he claimed that he had been like ghost hunting the cemetery or something and that he had seen this figure. And it was a tall gray figure. And then, of course, David Ferrant claims that he found uh these dead animals and stuff so i guess the logical jump is that vampire but uh so you have this guy and then eventually this other figure pops up named uh, bishop sean manchester and this guy is obsessed with the person i mentioned earlier montague summers to the extent of uh sean manchester claimed to be this wandering bishop and much like montague summers no one can actually find any evidence that he was ever ordained or anything but <laughs> Manchester claimed in an interview that his that this vampire was a quote unquote king vampire, which, like Montague Summer says, was a medieval magician who practiced black magic. And essentially, you know, he go he claims that this king vampire went through the black magic ritual, and now he's like the head vampire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, Manchester was the president of the British Occult Society. And what's <laughs> kind of crazy about this and attests to the i don't know what you call it uh viral potential of vampire myths is that 
it creates this like media frenzy where David Ferrant, the white magician of the psychic occult society, is like in competition with Bishop Sean Manchester of some unknown Catholic church. And they're both sneaking into this cemetery at night, trying to find and stake this vampire. And <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. I mean, you can find interviews and stuff with these guys on, on YouTube. And like to this day, so from 1970 to like 2020, there has been a feud going on between these two about the true nature of the Highgate vampire, who really killed the vampire. And like, it's just complete madness to listen to. I remember hearing Sean Manchester back in the day on a paranormal radio show. And he was talking about like he was standing at the tomb and he saw the vampire like as a wisp of smoke come out of the tomb. And then it transformed into some kind of giant spider. And he had to do battle with the crucifix and the stake with the spider and all this kind of shit. And eventually they had to like patrol the graveyard and all that with the local police because the townspeople were becoming so fed up with all this vampire shit that instead of saying, get out of here, it's not real. The townspeople all started to go into the vampire, you know, domain of the cemetery or whatever. And they started like vandalizing shit and burning shit down because they were all so scared of this whole story about this vampire being in Highgate. So if any listeners want to uh, delve down that wormhole, uh, I would definitely suggest it. It's highly entertaining and it really presents the, uh, like I said, the the viral marketing scheme of vampire myths and how like the fear of vampires like takes over the community and they just go out and do a bunch of crazy shit. But it's kind of a crazy story if anybody is interested. And uh, this is like pretty popular. There's another one in uh, New England in, I don't know, late late 19th century, but it's known as the New England Vampire Panic. And essentially what had happened, you had like, this is during the height of the big tuberculosis outbreak in like New England. And essentially tuberculosis is much, it's like the disease of consumption and really related to like leprosy in the ancient world and, you know, all this kind of thing. And essentially, yeah, the same thing sort of happens where they don't understand tuberculosis. And so everyone goes on this crazy adventure of digging up these corpses and all this kind of shit. And they're like burning them and and they're stuffing their mouths with garlic and cutting off their heads and going you know you know virtually some kind of vampire hunting madness and it, it i think it went on for quite a while and i think this is tied into that deal where i was talking about how they would bury these people and then put these small cages over their their gravestones to prevent them from coming back or whatever but i think <laughs> i think this story as well attests to how fast like you know as soon as a few rumors get started how the particular mythology of the vampire has this persuasion over the human psyche to where it just makes people fucking go crazy i should probably edit the f word out but makes people go completely crazy and you know it's all (laughs) it's all rooted in like the montague summers and the the vampire myths and all that kind of stuff so you know for neurological purposes it shows you how you know these 
these myths and legends can like spur on this crazy like outbreak of sort of i guess a hysteria of some kind well i actually do think it's interesting how the story of vampires has evolved over time so that what we assume is vampires is like this it is an evolution of like bram stoker's retelling of vampirism right and then it's just been retold so many times since him that it's this new type of vampire has kind of taken it's taken over yeah whether it be like Anne rice or twilight they're all kind of manifestations of this new novel form vampire right i think i think the closest thing i could see to that is uh say tolkien and his description of like elves and dwarves right like they're creatures that existed in mythology previous to his telling but everybody knows what an elf and a dwarf look like right you can ask anybody on the street right but if you tried to apply that to mythology it'd be like no that <laughs> is not what they look like yeah like yeah. dwarves even aren't even necessarily short <laughs> right in mythology which is hilarious but just the way we have this kind of new mythology that is come from this fictional world and you have people thinking about this creature uh even those like who might believe in vampires what they usually believe in is kind of this fictional version mm -hmm. and that's had a huge effect like there i've mentioned a few times about this sort of vampire subculture now i don't know how prominent this is nowadays because i'm getting old but when I was in high school, this is like a personal strange story of mine, but I'll lead into the vampire culture thing. But, you know, I've been ghost hunting for a long time and interested in this stuff for a long time. But when I was in high school, this sort of vampire-esque, it's like, it's like being gothic, which whatever, there's, I don't think there's really anything wrong with that. But like the vampire subculture is like you've, you've gone to a certain extent in gothic and you just want more. So you're going to go full full throttle into the dark world or whatever but when i was that old i remember hearing like myths and you know rumors about how there was a vampire cult in the neighboring town and how what they would do is that you know for some reason they they had this deal where there was like four or five of them that were quote-unquote vampires and that people like humanized the vampire at this point so they would actually donate their own blood to these i guess high school kids and which sounded crazy at the time and i never like got far enough to know you know is this really happening or whatnot but later you know as this stuff sort of became studied and whatnot this was apparently a real thing and you know to go off how we were talking about how like this fictional version of the vampire quote-unquote fictional version of the vampire like permeated society to a degree where it created like followers or you know devotees to this modern interpretation of the vampire and like i got a list here uh of these terms that are used within that community we got sanguinarians who are the vampires that consume the blood of others you have psychic vampires which is like this idea that yeah this idea where this a person is afflicted with this i guess ability to drain people's psychic energy from them while they're in the room so you know, someone talking about this would say, have you ever been in the room with someone that just drained your energy? And when you left the room, they were just, you know, you were drained and it was always around this one person. And so that came into prominence 
kind of around the same time that this, you know, vampire subculture did. Uh, we also have hybrids that both consume blood and, and uh, psychic energy. And then you have the blood donors that are willing members of this community that don't think they're vampires, but I guess they <laughs> they can relate to the plight of these vampires and they would just willingly, I guess they learned how to draw their own blood or something and then would give it to people in order for them to drink it, I guess, which is just super creepy. And then finally, which I think, you know, if you're going to put on the same psychoanalytic hat is probably the source of a lot of it but uh the use of blood is like a stimulant or a sexual fetish and there is sort of like something to that right like i know a lot of people that are really into this vampire and rice version are very attracted to like the you know the dark the mysterious dark individual in the corner and like the 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 act of piercing the neck and then drinking of the blood has like you know sort of a sexual undertone going on and i mean not to call anybody out but i used to have the supervisor at work <laughs> he said i remember loading trucks and he was talking about how much he liked vampires and he was just like what you don't think vampires are sexy and i'm like no i don't think vampires are sexy but i'm used to the old school vampire that's like a rotting corpse walking around but this is totally like a thing i mean look at the the success of the twilight movies i've never read the books i've never seen the movies but they were like the biggest mass selling book series of all time i mean not of all time but they were huge and you would just like walk into school and every girl in the classroom was reading twilight and you know this idea of the blood drained individual very skinny sucking in cheeks that was like the sex symbol at the time which is just like you know it's it's crazy to see that play out in real life because you know like we're talking it's like the modern incarnation of a vampire and for whatever reason that just totally resonated with me. yeah yeah I mean, Zechariah, you you're into role playing and stuff. Did you do you ever have you ever ran into people that were going beyond just role playing? Uh, I mean, let me think. Like, definitely a lot of people in the sort of nerd communities can get a little bit overboard at times with their uh, obsessions with various things and like. Mm -hmm. I think that. Japanese have this word for it. They call it like chunibyo or uh, eighth grader syndrome, where you get say, these delusions of grandeur uh, oh. and uh, whatever. So yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to just shit on people who think they're vampires or whatever. Right. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I'm trying. I don't want to. I don't want to come off like that either. I know I talk about it very flippantly, but uh, you know. If it's that's what you're into, that's what you're into. Um, but there are a few cases of this, like sort of going too far. Um, there's a guy named Rod Farrell, and he was known as the Vampire Killer. This is an interesting case of definitely neurological value. But uh, he became obsessed with the role-playing game Vampire: The Masquerade. Have you ever played that? Oh, no, I haven't played it, but I know of it, and yeah. it might be something I do in the future. So. Yeah, I would like to get into that too because even apart from people thinking they're vampires, I've heard that this is like an awesome role-playing game. So uh, I would be interested in getting into this. But uh, it led him, this Rod Farrell guy began after becoming obsessed with this game or whatever, he began calling himself 
uh, Visajo. He was a 500-year-old vampire, and uh, so through his role-playing, he sort of slowly made the transition from this is a game to I'm actually this person or whatever. But he uh, he actually started a vampire cult with the original name of the Vampire Clan and was eventually convicted of murdering two people. And it's kind of crazy because, again, the 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 going viral of the of the vampire meme he was actually able to recruit cult members and when he, when they murdered this person what it was is they they had all uh there was like five or six of them that were his vampire subjects or whatever and yeah so they go down to new orleans and uh, i think what happens is that they steal someone's car or something and then they go back to the house and they like kill the people and drink their blood so (laughs) that's some uh scary shit and then there was another one that i found tracy wiggington and she was known as the lesbian vampire killer and what sort of her progression was that she claimed to drink the blood of animals and so she got into this whole idea that she was a vampire of course and began it's kind of eerily similar to renfield in uh dracula the book but he in dracula the book renfield is sort of like building up to becoming a real vampire or something and so he starts like killing flies and eating flies and he like moves on to rats then he moves on to cats and then eventually you know he's trying to he's trying to accumulate life for the master or whatever but it's kind of weird because like this Tracy Hick- Wigington thing sort of takes the same approach where she starts killing small things, moves on, and then she becomes, um, you know, obsessed with she needs to kill a man and drink his blood. Uh, so she, uh, just like the last guy, she develops this small cult of vampire followers. And essentially what happens is they finally decide now that she's got her posse that they're going to kill someone. Uh, they take they take this drunk guy. One of the one of the ladies uh, pretends she's a prostitute, lures this guy into the park, and then they uh, kill the guy. And then they drink his blood. They cut off his head and start drinking the blood out of it. And all this crazy shit. And uh, and yeah. And then at the end of it, she's released from prison in uh, 2012. <laughs> but uh, you know, these are some examples on how like this vampire myth like I've mentioned a hundred times already is there's just something about it that is almost like this primordial thing that is baked into our psyche that we have this very, I don't know, violent reaction, very extreme reaction to the myth. And, you know, I guess that's, that's my point is that it's extremely viral and influences people and cultures and things like that to do, to do wild shit. Uh, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to pursue is kind of uh, viral uh, ideas in neurological uh, things. Like, that's exactly what this whole elf thing or vampire thing is, right? It's kind of this viral meme <laughs> in some sense. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of what makes it sort of distinctive, too. It's like... They don't really have much of an interest in the old conceptions of the undead and the vampire and, you know, all that. I mean, even where I talked about earlier about how the vampire seems to follow the same 
markers of like medieval disinformation campaigns against Jews where like that whole thing has sort of been abandoned and now the quote unquote false version of the vampire is like this viral thing that just spreads throughout the culture and leads to you know just wild stuff but I don't know you got anything else yeah I think I think that pretty much covers quite a lot of uh, what we're going in for right yeah I think so like, too when we, we've got we had like secret space we got blood usage of usage of blood in uh, Old Testament and New Testament times we've got the uh, religious vibes going through the book yeah, I actually to touch on real quick. The very beginning of the book is interesting, actually, because again, you're t- talking about how it doesn't kind of tell us it's vampires first off, but what it does really show first off is their interactions with the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. What do you think of that? What's your thoughts? I didn't I really. I I don't know. I think Stephen King is definitely cognizant of the fact that the vampire follows like a Catholic worldview. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we talked about, you brought up Gene Wolfe, the symbols and all that. Like Gene Wolfe in his book has this very like Eucharistic metaphysics going on. And I think for Stephen King, you, you can't have one without the other. So in order for Stephen King to, you know, write a valid vampire story, you know the the physics involved in destroying the vampire must assume that like Catholicism as a worldview or something. But that's about all I got for that. But yeah, I thought it was interesting where uh, it felt very true to life that they're like it's almost it almost felt like a rejection of his later thing where you have to understand or uh, the symbols. Well, I guess I guess his thing was you have to believe in the symbols, right? right. But where they go. Uh, the man and the boy as yet unnamed are like attending this mass but it's like all in Spanish and they can't speak Spanish but they just show up anyway <laughs> right well see that's kind of what I think I was semi I guess I'll call it that I guess I was like confused by it a little bit because like you're saying it's like it's somehow in this universe both are true somehow where you know you have Father Callahan who doesn't believe in the symbol, all of a sudden the symbol doesn't work. However, Callahan's unbelief doesn't seem to affect the idea that the church doesn't allow him to enter it. Mm. Right? Because, you know, if he felt like if belief was required for the spiritual mechanism to work, then I would think his unbelief would also allow him to enter the church or something, you know? So I think, I guess one strike against the book, in my opinion, is I think that the internal logic doesn't actually work interesting interesting you know but maybe that's maybe that's the key to the whole thing is that father callahan actually does believe in it where it's almost like his fall of faith with the cross thing allows him to become a vampire but his becoming of the vampire allows him in some capacity it's almost like a boost to his faith but locks him in some kind of weird world now where you know his lack of faith led him to his condition, which now restored his faith, which now doesn't allow him to enter the church or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, that's funny. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that was Salem's Lot by All Stephen. Right, there it was. <laughs> These are your curators. Signing off. <laughs>